mentioned in, in chapter 5 and in chapter 7. We know Chloe and some of her people are providing oral reports, and so he's aware of the issues that continue in Corinth. And so as a good pastor, he's writing back with, with people and situations in mind, looking to, to shepherd them, to shape them, to pastor them. And ultimately, the desire of this first letter to the Corinthians is this. It's to say, hey, we want you to be the temple of God in this city. And so, because we're not going to build a temple, because we're not going to have a place where we're doing sacrifices, we need you, right, to, to, to reflect the very character and the image of God. It's the same calling that we have, right? That, that's why we would say that we're the church and not this place is the church. That here in an hour or so, the church will get up and leave and go into a world that is in desperate need to know hope and to know peace. And that we know that hope and peace has a name, and it's Jesus. And so we, in the lives that we live, not just in the moments where we sing, are worshipers. And we're revealing the character and the image of God in, in the lives we live. And it's why we would pray that for our teachers and for our students. Um, it's why we, we, we care and we want to have you in your neighborhoods and, and coaching your kids' teams. That if we have you up here five, six nights a week, right, we, we've taken you out of the place where you get to really most clearly reflect God's image. And so what Paul has done is he's just walked through and he's looking at a lot of different behavioral issues that are going on and, and, and doing some course correction, doing some shepherding. And what we saw last week in chapter 8 was this, that, that some of the, those in Corinth have, are going back and they're celebrating um, at the temples. And so after sacrifices, after, after holidays, they would have these big meals to celebrate and they were just social events. And so for some of the folks, they were very meaningful and worshipful, but for many, it was just a chance to go and to eat and to be around those that you know in the city. And so they're writing and saying, hey, some of these believers in the church, they're, they're weak and they're struggling with this. So Paul, would you tell them it's no big deal? Because we know that food isn't that big of a deal and we know that we're free. And Paul doesn't disagree with them. He says, you're right, you are free. And you're right that food isn't right. It doesn't change us for the good or for the bad. But he says, look, the, the issue here is that we want to lay down our freedoms for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and if you are leading those back into the temple who maybe have come from the temple, that that has had a, a tremendous impact on their life, he said, then you are risking destroying a brother or sister in Christ. And so are you really going to stand here and claim we are free and we, are, we have the right to do this? And, and all at the same time, you've got a foot on a fellow brother or sister's neck saying, I'm not really concerned with whether or not I'm destroying them because I have the right to do this. And so this, this kind of line of conversation is going to continue in chapter 9. Because if you remember, Paul makes a pretty bold statement. The last verse of chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, so if this is the case, I want you to know it's not just temple meat that I wouldn't eat anymore. I'll quit eating meat, period, if it means that, right, I can love a brother or a sister. He's, he's speaking just with, like, with hyperbole, saying, I'll do whatever it takes on behalf of another. And so what Paul's going to do in chapter 9 is, is he's going he's to redefine what freedom is. And he's going to talk about what our role is as, as fellow brothers and sisters. And he's going to illustrate what it looks like to lay down your rights. Because when we hear the word freedom, especially as Mer Americans, right? Like we have probably a, a greater, like, anticipation of what that is and some of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't live with the same type of freedoms we have. 
But when we think of freedom, um, ultimately it's some variation of it's doing what I want, right? It's not having authority over me. It's not having to answer. It's doing it what I want, when I want, how I want, and then telling me, telling you, don't judge me, (laughs) right? I'm free to do it. Why are you looking at me like that? It's pursuing self-interest, and it's pursuing gain, and it's not that we can't have a positive spin on freedom, but ultimately where, we, where you're going to rile people up is if you begin to take freedoms away, and it's when they say, I, I want to do what I want when I want, okay? And Paul's going to talk about this. He's going to redefine freedom for us. And so let's start, and we'll just read through the good portion of chapter 9 here. I'm going to start with the last verse of chapter 8. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Then he goes on with some rhetorical questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not all have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on a human authority? Does does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel." But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. So what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
So Paul here is going to, he's, he's looking to build a case as to why he was so stark with them in chapter 8. Why he's willing to say, hey, I'm telling you, you need to lay down the right to eat food for the sake of brothers and sisters, even though he's agreeing, right, with them that their premise is okay, right, that they are free and that food isn't that big of, uh, big of a deal. And so he's going to lay out an argument. Now, Paul's going to talk a lot about himself in chapter 9, and if you notice in, in verse 3, he says, in my defense. And one of kind of the rhetorical arguments that would be used was the only way to really talk about yourself without appearing braggadocious and turning off your audience was if you were in defense of yourself. And so he's saying, look, I'm making a defense so that I can speak freely so that you can understand where I'm standing here. And so he wants to bolster his claim in verse 13. And so he starts with this. He starts simply with his status. And he asks four rhetorical questions in verses 1 and 2 here. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And so what's going on with the rhetorical question is, is you're not asking rhetorical questions that that the audience is unsure of the answer. There would have been an emphatic, yes, you're free. Yes, you are an apostle. Yes, you saw the Lord, right? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? That they know that he's the one who planted this church, that many of them believe because of his ministry to them. And so as he's, as he's asking these questions, right, they're sitting there in agreement going, yeah, you are an apostle. Yeah, you do have status. Yes, you did. You saw the risen Lord. Yes, you are free. Like they would have been nodding in agreement to these rhetorical questions. And so he's simply saying, look, I have, I have some status. And he's, he's beginning to build an argument. The next thing is not just only his status, but he's going to look at societal norms. And basically, he is building a case for his right to receive payment for the ministry that he does. And so look now in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? And you see he's tying it back into chapter 8 where they were talking about food. He's like, look, do I not have the right to eat and drink? I have to do these things, right? Do we have the right to take along a believing wife? As do, and he just gives us some inside information, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is Peter. He's like, look, so I don't have a wife. They do. I have the right to one. And then in verse 6, he goes, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So obviously the rest of these that he's mentioned, Peter, the apostles, the brothers of the Lord, they are being paid for the ministry that they do. And he's referring to himself and Barnabas, and he's saying, look, we, we work for what we do. We aren't taking money from you. We know that Paul was a tent maker. He, he literally made tents. And so, again, he's continuing with these rhetorical questions. They're going, yeah, you do have the right to eat and drink. We all do. Um, you have the right to a wife, right? We know that these other men are being paid for what they do. And so he continues in verse 7. He goes, so who serves as a soldier at his own expense? The obvious answer being no one, right? That if you're going to go to war, you're going to be taken care of. Your, your needs are going to be met. That you have the right to expect to be sustained for your effort. So again, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? He's saying like, this is common sense that we understand that when people put forth effort, they expect payment in return. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And the answer to these questions would be no soldier does these things. No farmer does these things. No shepherd does these things. He's, he's reminding them that the expectation would be to be sustained by their effort. You see it as well in verses 12 and 13. 
where he starts to talk about those who are employed in the, in the, the pagan temples. He's like, verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. He's like, this is just the way it is, that when we work, we get paid. It's how, it's, it's, it's how society functions. And so they're just kind of nodding along in agreement, saying, yeah, Paul, you are an apostle. You did see Jesus. You're right that in society, we pay those for the effort they put forth. And then he goes to Scripture. Look at verse 8. So he says, am I saying these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, 4, that you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain. And so the idea is, right, is, is an ox tied to a, like a millstone, walking in a circle, grinding the wheat or grinding whatever grain is involved. And he's like, you will, you're going to feed it if it's while it's doing its work, right? Like how wrong would it be to muzzle it so that it can't eat while you're expecting it to do work that you're going to benefit from? And so he's like, look, is God really writing this just about the oxen who can't read and aren't really concerned with the law? He's like, verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So he says, look, Scripture teaches, right, that the one who works, even if it's spiritual work, should receive payment, right, for what they do. So he continues in verse 11, so if we have, if we have sown spiritual things among you, which they're already in agreement that he has, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he's saying, we've given you e- eternal things, things that will last forever. So how big of a deal is it for you to give us some temporal things so that we can eat and drink and be taken care of? Right? He's saying, like, I've given you a greater thing. I'm asking for a lesser thing. Like, I have the right to be paid by you guys, to be taken care of because of my status, because this is what society does, because the Scriptures teach this. Because you're already doing it for others. Look at verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So they're like, you're already paying some guys who are ministering to you. And then his final argument here is that Jesus said this is what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And what they're doing is they're quoting um, from Luke 10, 7, Matthew 10, 10, when, when Jesus is sending out uh, the disciples on mission, and he tells them, hey, don't, don't take a lot of stuff with you. When you go into a community, they need to take care of you, right? They need to open their homes. They need to feed you. They need to take care of you. And so that Jesus, he's saying Jesus has set the standard that those who work in spiritual ways should be paid for their work. So all of this, he's just setting up, and, and so they're sitting there in agreement going, yeah, you're right, you are these things, and Scripture does teach this, and you're right that this is how we work in society, and all the while they're thinking, but we're not paying you, <laughs> right? So they're, they're, they know that they're not paying Paul, and yet he has set up this tremendous argument of why he is deserving of payment, why he should be getting paid. And then let's see what he says. He says he lays it down. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15. 
but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor, he makes sure here, he goes, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. So he is set up, I have a right given by Scripture, given by society, given by my status, given by Jesus himself to claim for you to take care of me. I have that right. And I'm reminding you that I haven't taken it. Right? We can't forget, what, what has he just said in chapter 8? He says, you have the right to eat what you want, but I'm asking you to lay down a right that you rightfully have for the sake of others. And so Paul is basically, he's being a living illustration here and saying, look, I have a right as well, a right that you would all agree to, and I have laid that right down for the sake of the gospel. He's, he's building this argument, wanting them to say, okay, you're not just asking us to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. So why? Uh, the question is this, right? Why is he willing to lay this down? Like if he's saying the Lord has commanded it and Scripture has taught it and this is what society does, why is Paul specifically towards the Corinthians not receiving payment? Why has he done this? Remember, in Corinth, they had a, a culture of speakers, right, who would come in and would speak and would look to bring, bring in followers, and they would do lavish banquets, and they would have tremendous oratory skills. And Paul's like, I'm pretty simple. I just kind of teach you the gospel, and, and it works because it's powerful. But in this culture, you could receive honor and status in society if you were the patron, if you paid for a guy that was well-respected as a teacher. And so you could begin to go, I fund Paul. He's my guy. Oh, yeah, you've got that guy? Yeah, he's got like 12 people that follow him. Look at Paul. I take care of Paul. When Paul needs something, I meet his needs. Right? And so because there was this, this system of patronage, Paul is saying, I don't want there to be any accusations. You don't own me, and I don't owe you anything. Because in this system, favors were expected, right? Right, like status was expected, that you would be the one, you would, you would mention them, and you would eat meals with them, and, and you would give them prominent attention. And so Paul is saying, there will be no favors, you're not going to own me. There will be no accusations that, oh, you're only saying that because he's paying you and he really wants, that's his message. He wanted the freedom to move within society, right? And so if he is being paid by a, a well-off benefactor, can he then go and socialize with those who don't have money? And he's like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not going to get tied down by who pays me. And so I want the freedom to minister and to interact with both Gentiles and Jews. And so if, it, if I have a Jewish benefactor, do the Gentiles think that when I say things kind of opposed to them, that it's because this Jewish guy is paying me? Or if I have a Gentile benefactor, are the Jews going, well, you're only saying that because they're paying you? He's like, I, I, I want there to be no room for this. And if we're honest, this, this struggle actually still exists, right? That we've, we've had people say um, early on at Redeemer, we had someone come up to us one time and they said, we know who, who runs Redeemer. And I'm like, I'm not sure what you're saying. Like, like what do you mean who runs? He's like, whoever has the most money. I'm like, no. I mean, like, that's not how it works. But, right, there's just this mentality of whoever tithes the most gets to call the shots. Right? Whoever tithes the most can use that to either control the pastor or to manipulate the pastor or can say, well, I'll just quit giving then, right? And so there's this expectation that that stuff, because it, it does still happen in churches, that that, that that could happen. 
there's an awkward level of, of, in my role, of talking about giving, period, right? When you know I'm a recipient of that. Of course you want to talk about tithing, Jeremy, of course, right? Because you get some of it. And so then it's like, well, do I talk about it too much? Do we not talk about it enough? It's, it's an issue of, of faithfulness. And yet, right in the back of my mind, I'm going, they all think you're just asking for more. Then in the church world, typically, pastoral, um, like pastors, their salary is, is often known, right? And so then people are like, oh, you get paid too much. Oh, you don't get paid enough, and we can control you in that, right? Like, the, these issues still exist. And so what Paul has simply said is, I'm not dealing with it. I'm, not, I'm saying it's, the, it's a right that I have, and most everyone is doing it. But in this case, in this place, because of the, the societal norms here and the expectations of what benefactors and patrons are able to get from those who they're paying for, I'm not taking anything. The gospel is free of charge. And I'm going to be able to speak exactly what needs to be said to whoever it needs to be said, however it needs to be said, whenever it needs to be said, because no one owns me. And yet he's built up this argument saying, but I have the right. And I have laid that right down. And I've laid it down not for my benefit because it's actually harder. (laughs) He's like, look, um, verse 15, I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing them to secure it. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He's obviously very emotional about this. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, necessity is laid upon me. He's like, look, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it because God has compelled me to do it. What then is my reward? In verse 18, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge as to not make full use of my right. But we know that Paul is somewhat of an embarrassment to the Corinthians because he's a blue-collar worker who's not letting them honor him by paying him more. Who's having to work with his hands. That is, is, is looked at as being on the lower end of society, and yet they want him to be elevated because then that gains them status. So Paul's saying, look, it would be easier if you just paid me. It wouldn't be so hard. There's a cost here. But I'm not, this isn't about me, it's about you, and I want to make sure that those who need to hear the gospel are going to be free to hear the gospel because they're not concerned with who's got me in their pocket. And so, he is laying out a beautiful example of, to them of what it looks like to lay rights and freedoms down for the sake of the church, because it costs him socially. He is not as perceived by the community and even by some in the church as high off as he should be, because he works. He's, it, it affects his reputation, that people think, what's wrong with you? Like, are you really an apostle? Like, are you really that special if, if the church doesn't take care of you, if they're not paying, right? Like, it affects him socially. It affects his reputation. It makes things harder. And so then the question would be this. It would be like, okay, Paul, we get that you're laying down this right, but to what benefit? Like, what's gained from you doing this other than the fact that you can tell us not to eat meat? And he, he, he goes there in verse 19. For though I am free from all, he's like, no one owns me, and I am free in Christ. I have made myself a servant to all of you, to all, that I might win more of them. So he's going to go through here, and he says, look, because I'm not being paid by any specific group, 
then I can move and say and do what needs to be done for the sake of the gospel that people will believe. That they will know that the gospel's for them. And that they can hear it and that they can respond to it. And so he goes through and he says, look, to the Jew, I become a Jew. To those under the law, as one under the law. He goes to those outside the law, like to pagans. He's like, look, I still am going to respond to the fact that I'm under God's law. I'm not going to go be licentious and live whatever life I want. But I'm going I'm to respond to them who are outside the law. For all of these, to the weak as well, for all of them, I have become all things, in verse, 20, verse 22, to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, and I may share with them in its blessings. So, we need to, we need to look at this a little closer. Here's what this looks like. So, if Paul is in a Jewish home, because he's a Jew, Paul can eat kosher, right? He can eat as they want him to eat, as, as he knows they want him to eat. And he does not have to flaunt his freedom of, I don't have to do this, and so you shouldn't make me do it. He's saying, I can, I can eat what you put in front of me. But he's also saying, as a, as, a, as a Jewish man, that I can go into a pagan Gentile's home who have no idea what kosher is, and I can eat whatever they lay before me too right, with my conscience not being pricked at all. And I don't have to demand my right as this God-fearing believer, you will feed me what I ask you to feed me because of my backgrounds. Right, he's saying I can, I can be what I need to be in those homes, in those mill, mill times. That the point of it is salvation. And so we have to make sure here, because here's where this can go awry, that we can begin to be motivated by fear. Right, we can, we can say, Okay, Paul's given me an out here not to say hard things to people, especially in regards to their sin, so I can, I can change the gospel message a little bit. It's not what Paul's saying. He's not talking about affecting the message of the cross. He's talking about his behavior. The message stays the same, but his presentation and his demeanor around people is affected. That it's not about the approval of man. He's not changing and acting more Jewish or more Gentile so that they'll applaud him and say, yeah, we knew you were in our corner, Paul. He's like, I'm not letting you pay me for that, for that reason. I'm not doing it so they will applaud me. I'm doing it so that I can take down unnecessary burdens and barriers between us and the cross. So let me give you an example of this. When Carmen and I were living overseas, you know that Muslims don't eat pork. Um, as, a, as a believing American, in every regard, I have the right to eat bacon whenever I want to eat bacon. Right? Right? Yeah. Thanks, Brett. <laughs> okay? Like, I, like, so Paul's saying, you have the right. I have that right. Nothing in Scripture tells me I can't do it, right? As an American, I have no issue with it. But I'm surrounded by an entire nation that is offended by that. And so if I go into a home and I say, man, thank you for this delicious spread, but it would be better with bacon bits, right? <laughs> Feed me that, right? Like, that is, that's offensive to them to the point that my message, which hasn't changed yet, right, isn't really going to be heard because they're so offended. Or if I bring them into my home and say, you'll eat what I put in front of you, right? Because I'm free, and I've got this really great story to tell you, this really great message for you right? They're not going to hear that because you've so, like, offended them and put your own freedoms, which I have, above my love and concern for them. So, what Paul is saying is, like, look, the message doesn't change, 
But yes, if I can remove unnecessary hindrances, barriers, um, critiques between myself and someone else so that they can more clearly, plainly, happily hear the message that I have, which actually brings life eternally and salvation, you better believe I'm going to do it. Because the point is salvation, not their approval. It's not a changing message. It's not for my ease or so that I can go sin or for my comfort. It's for the good of others. You know, another one is, um, so in the Middle East, the bottom of your foot is really offensive, right? So if, if I show you the bottom of my foot, the only really American equivalent is flipping you off, right? Maybe while saying a few choice words with it. And so what that means is that you have to be really careful when you're sitting down that your feet aren't, the bottom of your feet aren't pointed at someone. I'm not the most flexible dude, right? And so the most comfortable thing for me, because we're sitting on the floor often, is to be with my back up against the wall and my feet straight out, right? As close to the chair posture as I can get. Well, that means my feet are doing this. I have the right to do that, right? That's comfortable for me. But what I did is I, I became a pretzel, right? And I would find a way to keep my feet pointed either at the floor or at the wall so, so as to not unnecessarily offend someone whom I love, and who I want to have hope and peace. I want them to know Jesus, and I want them to be able to hear the gospel with the least amount of hindrances possible. Right? That, this is what Paul is talking about, that we, we can willingly lay down our rights for the sake of others. And so he asked them to do that in a very specific way in chapter 8. Don't eat at the temples anymore for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Just like I have laid down my right to be more comfortable and more at ease because you've paid me. So what he's done is he has redefined freedom. And he's redefined it as this. It's the right for us to pick up or to put down anything in our lives for the good of others. Right? Like that we begin to look at the community of faith and we say, how can I best love you? What can I pick up that I don't have to because it'll love you better? What can I lay down as a right so that I can love you better. And it takes the idea of freedom off of the individual and puts it on us. It's not about self-interest anymore. It's about us, the church. It's, it's not that different than marriage, right? Because you're asking two people to come into marriage and to love one another and to forgive one another and to serve one another, and you do it regardless of their response. And so, right, in, in, in fear you're going... Well, if I could do that and then they don't, that's really good for them and really bad for me. And yet in a biblical marriage, it's two people doing this towards each other, serving each other, holding each other up, pouring out honor, forgiving, loving, and they're both receiving what they need. And so sometimes in our freedom, we go, I got to look out for me, even in the church. And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Like we, we look to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and if your fear is is you'll be the only one doing it and so you'll be trampled over, it's like that's why he's having this conversation with the church saying we should all be looking at one another, saying how do we best love and serve one another within the confines of the church, laying down our own needs, wants, and desires, considering others is better than ourselves. So how can Paul ask this and how do we do it? Because Jesus has done it already, right? Have, have we forgotten that he left the comfort, the ease, the, the divine rights and privilege of heaven 
And in humility, he put on flesh in the likeness of sin to come and walk in our midst. That he, that he laid down the rights and the privileges that he had for our sake and for our benefit to come and live in human history, to be mocked, scorned, humiliated, falsely accused, falsely tried, beaten, and murdered. Right? Like that he laid down the rights that he had so that we could be right with God. That he's already done it. He's already modeled it. He came in the flesh. That he laid down his higher status and willingly lowered himself for our rescue. Paul is saying, I've laid down the high status of an apostle that I have to serve you. To not be paid, to be viewed as low class, blue collar. He's saying, so I'm asking you to lay down the high status that you can gain from being um, in the, the societal circles of eating the meat at a celebratory temple service, and I know it's going to cost you something. It's going to mean you're lower in society, and it's going to mean people are going to, it's going to cost you. He's like, but I've done it, and more important than that, Jesus has done it. And the reason that you are right with God, the reason that you have hope and peace and eternal fruit, the reason that you have status before God is because Jesus has done it for us. Like he's, he's rescued us in this manner. And so as a church, we are reflecting his image and his character by loving others ahead of ourselves, by laying down our rights and freedoms out of love so that others can know Jesus. So how do we do it? There are a ton of ways. We can't get into all of them. My, my hope is that the Spirit would even be beginning to just like click some things in your heart and in your mind of going, And here's what it looks like for you at your job, in your home, with your neighbors, to lay down rights and freedoms for the sake of others out of love. Listen, there's going to be some tension in this. We're going to need wisdom to know when we should lay a right down and when we shouldn't, when we should pick one up and when we shouldn't. That's why we need to be in conversation, in community, walking with one another. But I want to end with this. That, that a couple of the ways that we do this is that church, as those who already know Jesus, we pursue people. We do not ask them to be the missionary to come find out the hope of the gospel. We go after them. We pursue them. We take the message to them, and it may cost you something, and it may affect your, like your, your status in society to be the one that is pursuing them. But not only is it that we are to pursue them, it's that we are to persevere in our pursuit. It's not that when you say, hey, do you want to come over to my house one time? And they say, no, I can't. And they're like, well, I guess you don't love Jesus, right? Hey, do you, want to, do you want to come to service with me? Yeah, I don't think so. Oh, okay, I'll go find somebody, right? Like, it's that we pursue and we persevere, not to the point of being like obnoxious, right? But that we just, we just graciously, patiently love and pray and serve, right, those that we would so desperately long that they would know Jesus, that we, that we could be a part of seeing them one to the faith, that we would do all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings, that I would become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So church, we, we can't even really get into to this practical aspect of the conversation. We'll, we'll continue that next week but that the Spirit would just begin to give you eyes to see who, who is it 
that maybe I've been quick to write off after one conversation? Who is it that I could lay down some rights in order to just begin to love them better? That may be someone in the church or maybe someone that's not yet a believer. And that we would do it not because we're better, not to gain status, but that Paul himself says, I'm a servant to you all. I don't lord from on high. I serve you as Jesus has come to serve. Right? Like that is our example. That's who we worship. Let me pray for us.